Welcome to the Heart to Kill podcast, the official podcast of the Heart to Kill program, the world's leading program for driven individuals looking to gain direction and momentum, where we aim to break down the complex, multifaceted and holistic factors of human performance and optimization. Both on the program and on this podcast, we will be discussing and excavating everything pertaining to psychological resilience, physical robustness, and leading by example with discipline and tenacity to create a culture of winning, especially in the turbulent, frenetic, and high-tempo world of the ambitious individual. This is Mark, the creator, senior DS, and head coach of the Heart of Field program. Let's get stuck straight into it. So today, please help me welcome our guest, Andy Roberts Jiu-Jitsu. Andy is a black belt operating under the name of Andy Roberts BJJ, and also runs Tactical Jiu-Jitsu. So without further ado i'll hand over to the man himself he can introduce himself tell you a little bit about himself so first and foremost mate thank you very much for for coming on could you tell us a little bit about yourself mate yeah so i say um my name's andy um but i've been <laughs> training sort of martial arts since i was what, eight years old eventually found my way to brazilian jiu-jitsu after trying a lot of stuff um, settled with the BJJ side of things, um, trained with, luckily to train with some of the top, top guys, and then currently sort of running a full-time academy in um, North Camp, sort of Hampshire way, next to Aldershot, but also have a side company, Tactical Jiu-Jitsu, which we deliver training to the military and we provide sort of free training for police and um, sort of security and all those sort of things. It, and it's not, thing with tactical jiu-jitsu, it's not jiu-jitsu. This is the, like, not jiu-jitsu as, as we know it. So it's more traditional, Additionally, so I use jiu-jitsu because it's more akin to the samurai battlefield stuff. So we, yeah. the tactical jiu-jitsu program has striking, stand-up wrestling and stuff, and, and the ground survival part. In terms of my martial arts journey, I was briefly started, started with judo for a couple of years. Judo was eight. Parents put it in standard story. Little timid kid needs a bit of confidence. Yeah, so put in judo, loved it. Partially that club closed, then tried a few other clubs, didn't quite get on, then found a traditional jiu-jitsu club. Loved that, fell in love with that. And then there's 93, 94, we convinced my mate's mum to get UFC 1 out of the video store. <laughs> she saw it. Saw hoisting his gi, smashing everyone, and we're like, boom, we're doing jiu-jitsu. He's doing jiu-jitsu. We must be on the right path. Yeah. Spoke to my instructor about it, and he was like, Who's Hoist Gracie? Never heard of them. And all that. So I was like, okay. Um, and then about 98, I got to train with Carly Gracie on a seminar. He came over to Sheffield, did that. And I was like, actually, this is the form of jujitsu I need to do. Started on that path, went to the States and trained. Um, and yeah, ended up moving down south, trained at Rogers Academy, helped him set up his first full-time academy, trained under Roger Gracie. And then from there, got my belts and everything from him and his father. Sort of 2007, opened my own place, started teaching um, as a purple belt then, because there was no one else around to train with. But I was traveling to London and training. And then here we are 15 years later from that full-time academy. It's a 15-year anniversary of this place in September. And then probably, I think, 2017, started the tactical jiu-jitsu stuff properly because of proximity to the army bases, guys who are training, they have a requirement to do it. We helped help them set up the sports team first. So that was like the first in getting BJJ recognized as an official army sport. Through that, we managed to get a lot of contacts and then started doing sort of a bit bit more of the unarmed combat. We say unarmed, but everyone's armed. So the survivability training with the guys. Yeah. Um, started with four rifles. Their CEO loved it. He came down from 2-2, took over, actually joined in the session. They had a few guys train, like come in and do some trial sessions. Him and the two IC joined in, loved it. And he was paying out his own CO's fund to get us training weekly with those guys. So they were like the first sort of regiment to start training regularly. 
and then from there we built through other specialist units and we're in a fortunate position now to be running a pilot with 16 air assault brigade yeah. and they're running a dismount dismounted close combat survivability program yeah. we did the first train the trainer program a couple of weeks ago um, and they're going to start delivering to their units from september so yeah. big big things happening hopefully big moves mate fantastic like what i picked up on especially there is when you started training it as a martial art like i can only imagine there was just not like now we're very fortunate in the uk we've got a really thriving and, and rapidly growing jiu-jitsu scene specifically brazilian jiu-jitsu back when you first started knocking on the door of it and even when you started instructing at purple belt i hazard a guess it was pretty fucking barren in terms of like actual places to yeah. train the people to train with yeah definitely so I was in Sheffield up until 2004 and we had to literally as me and my mate went to the States to train we got our blue belts well it was my second visit his first visit but I'd been helping train and we got our blue belts like 2001 came back internet was just starting off to try and find out who's training see so we were pretty much on our own but then we hooked up with a couple of other guys like Ben Popperton and yeah. um, Neil Owen and stuff come over from Doncaster so we used to train with about five or six of us um, once a week training but again I think I did a count when I was blue belt and I think there was probably 30 or 40 blue belts at the time when we got it so yeah we were at the beginning and it was kind of the north traveling around training with each other found out Mauricio was in Birmingham at yep. that time drove down but the first time I trained with him it was his last day in Birmingham before he moved to London so I was like come on so <laughs> yeah so I made we made trips to London everything just trained amongst ourselves we like I think we're probably at a little advantage in the fact that the club I was helping teach traditional jiu-jitsu at in Sheffield had like the the guy who owned it was a judo black belt as well and I'd done judo so we had a quite a sort of eclectic and and almost modern approach to the traditional stuff so we'd go and train at Hillsborough Judo Club with like guys like Steve Gore up and stuff they were there so we do that once or once or twice a month we also at that time i was training tie boxing and all sorts so we had kind of it wasn't stuck in a traditional mindset it was always trying to find out what was working what not and then hoist came over doing his visits and stuff so yeah, yeah we had we were lucky that it was quite forward thinking how we were doing the approach and stuff yeah and obviously definitely, that's definitely like a lineage that i've seen really frequently with high level guys such as yourself as they've studied judo first because it almost seems like a parent sport and entry to like the grappling yeah. martial arts then obviously the, the, the derivations of that and i didn't actually know until probably about a year ago that brazilian jiu-jitsu was derived from traditional jiu-jitsu which was derived from what samurais would do at, at the time at which they were disarmed on a, on a yeah. battlefield to disarm and then incapacitate an opponent so it's really, really cool and obviously then you can really obviously see the carryover between that and like dismounted desirability so if someone's closing forth with a long barrel weapon like getting past that and then you know obviously doing what is necessary off the back of it because rightly or wrongly uh brazilian jiu-jitsu from my perspective now is going down a route of being relatively uncombative like it's very sport oriented so you know if you're going to start inverting and looking for a, a leg lock when someone's trying to fucking brush you up it's probably not going to go over so well <laughs> so yeah yeah, um, yeah i think that that side of things is is a good point but it's like there's there's evolution so it's the same as what what has happened to judo so as you touched on we got the jiu-jitsu the samurai did and when they when they got disarmed or, or closed range that then was what they did well but feudal japan kind of ended samurai had nothing to do they just wandered around beating each other up and having <laughs> fights and beating the civilians up what happens they weren't this Okay, they had their code of honor, but I think when there wasn't any wars to fight, they were probably quite a, um, a thuggish, a thuggish group of people. Yeah. Then you got Carno who started judo, and basically he he wanted to create sport or to 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 maintain that 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 jujitsu sort of uh, maintain the art. But obviously, there's no wars to fight, so he removed some of the stuff, taking people off horses, all the stuff that they didn't need to have. Got it recognized as a sport, taught in universities. 
from there went to the Olympics. And if it hadn't, I think if it hadn't have gone to the Olympics, we'd probably look more like BJJ does mm. because it was meant to be efficient. It's meant to do do what it's meant to be doing, effective fighting art. It had strikes in it. It had the self-defense elements. But the Olympics, they want to kiss stay on TV. They want TV coverage. So big throws rather than groundwork sell. An audience can understand it. An audience understand knockouts and they understand big takedowns in MMA and they understand the submission. But the intricacies in between, intricacies in between they yeah. struggle with. So it's gone down that path. Whereas yeah. the BJJ guys, well, originally Gracie guys, got taught by Kano student who was a jiu-jitsu guy, then became a judo guy, traveled, did a bit of catch wrestling in the UK, ran out of money. The only way you could earn money was to the prize fight. But Carno had had that, that set of rules in place that you can't, if you're a judo guy, you can't prize fight. Yeah. So out of respect, he took away judo and called it jiu-jitsu again. And then you get to the Gracie family and and the other and that Brazilian culture, street fights, Valley Tudo. So they made an efficient art, and yeah. that's great. And then touching on how it's going sporty, I think like it's a it's a natural progression of we have this art that is really effective self defense and and combat style but it's limited in the longevity of how much you can train there's you don't need to know that much to become effective so then the natural progression is we start rolling around a bit more sparring we start creating new positions and, and have fun and the sports side of things is going to keep the combat alive but it will invent new positions and as long as your mindset is aware that actually when i'm on the street or when i'm doing it in like full rig in the salt that i'm not going to invert i'm going to have a very basic strategy and game plan that what i'm going to do yeah. then then it, it's fine and then the sports side adds that level of enjoyment and fun and doing that sort of stuff so i think it's kind of horses for courses if you yeah. want to compete well you're going to have to learn all that new stuff but if you want to be sort of um effective at jujitsu you need to keep it keep that fundamental so as long as the schools are still teaching fundamentals yeah. and then adding the sports stuff on the end and they know how to defend punches on from the guys mounted on you, you know how to defend it if it's punching you and you know how to defend and, and take someone down if they're trying to strike you um, then it's all good. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm particularly interested off the back of that is then talking about your role in, in training guys and dismount survivability in, in like close quarters combat and all that sort of stuff. Because as you all know, like inside the hard to kill program, we have a high percentage of individuals serving in law enforcement, both here and in the United States. And to not put too fine a point on it, their training offered professionally is subpar or inadequate to actually do their job to the best of their ability and, and be safe in that and then we also get individuals currently serving or aspiring to serve in the military as well whereby like it's it's the chances of them actually coming into close quarters combat in that way in the roles they're in are relatively slim but i want to talk about the overarching sort of theme of self-confidence and self-assurance and self-reliability when it comes to actually having that as a skill up your sleeve so what as a sort of systemic overview what's the principles that you bring to the table when you start talking about you know dismounted survivability okay so Let's go for the, there's three, as I see it, there's a threefold benefit. Mm. One is obviously, if it does go hands-on, you know how to defend yourself, whether that's in a combat role or whether it's in, on the streets, like you have a responsibility to the, to the guys to, they have to be able to defend themselves. It's almost like a duty care. We don't want sort of like another Lee Rigby incident. Yeah. So there is always a threat, whether the guys on operations or the guys are just walking down the street, there, there is a threat to them. So we have those two benefits, which is the obvious benefit of learning how to fight. Then you go into the other benefits which you talk about, about that self-confidence and doing stuff. It's like, what higher level of confidence can you have knowing that you can handle yourself in a physical one-on-one -on -one altercation? If you know that, there's no other threat to you, okay? As a, as a human, 
okay, if you can defend yourself against another human who's attacking you, that level of confidence it instills is going to sort of almost allow you to avoid that contact, that confidence. As I remember growing up as a kid, the police would have your respect. You were scared of them, mm. okay? And now all due respect, you're not. There's like, <laughs> they, they don't instill me with confidence to be able to protect myself or my family or whatever. Yeah. And that, because as you say, the training lacks. And if the guys had better training, that air of confidence that they exude, and actually I know this, this copper can handle himself, so I'm not actually going to kick off as much as I, as I would have done. And the same, someone starts a fight, they come into initial contact with you, you've got confidence not to go see red and go balls out because you're training every day in the gym, you know what a fight's like. You can stop that sort of um, straight away in the early stages. Yeah. And then the other benefit is... So the camaraderie and the teamwork and the ethic of the guys scrapping together every day on the map, you you have to build a level of trust. Like if someone catches you in a submission, you got to trust them that when you tap, then they're going to let go. And vice versa, if you're putting a submission on, you're trusting the guy to tap before you injure him. So yeah. there's this massive level of, of mutual respect and trust. You don't have to like each other, mm. but there's a respect and trust that then will allow teams to work better together in, in high pressure environments. And then that last, the last benefit is being able to problem solve under immense pressure. The guy sat on your chest, punching you in the face, or he's sat on your chest trying to choke you out. And you, if you panic, if you just go crazy, it's going to end up end up in a worse situation. So you need to be able to stay calm, almost have like it, right? Okay, I'm safe. I'm there. How do I figure myself way out of this situation? And that 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 reflects one battlefield tactics and two uh, everyday life. You've got to be able to remain calm under pressure and make the right decisions. So that's kind of the overall arching benefits of what we see with the program in terms of. The guy's not necessarily having to use it. Yeah, it's great. Like, this is how the, how the program sits, which is what we deliver, is you never want to use it. What I'm telling you is not what I want you to go and do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're going to do your job role as your job role is meant to be done. So policemen trying to arrest someone, you're not just going to run in, double leg takedown, <laughs> wrap them up. You're going to have a chat to them. You're going to talk them through, trying to arrest them, stood up. You're going to do job role. But mm -hmm. what happens when it goes wrong? Yeah, you go hands-on to try and cuff someone. Then they start resisting. What exists in the police manual at the moment to deal with that situation doesn't work. I had the big, I had a training day here, biggest copper on there, handcuff on one wrist. He did what they're taught and he couldn't move me. And I'm not that big a bloke, but he couldn't move me. So what we've developed are sort of techniques and procedures, almost tactics to deal with these things. Yeah. In, in like that's what what's going to happen. It's guy that the guy's going to be compliant and it's easy and you do your job role, or is non-compliant and you do your job role how they're saying to it, or it goes from compliant to non-compliant and you need a backup. You need a backup, and if you have that backup, you're less likely to use excessive force. Yeah. At the moment, it's I think I'll probably get corrected if I'm wrong, but um, <laughs> you have a chat to someone, guy arrest you. No, they start resisting. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pepper spray you. They have levels of force, so but their their levels of escalation is like verbal pepper spray taser and then firearm and it's like there's a massive gap missing yeah so we're kind of, and that's the same we found with the with the with the army we've got chat to them shout at them talk or lethal and there's nothing there's zero in between that's being taught yeah. and that's where we've come in and just trying to fill that capability gap for the guys yeah and it's worked it's like everyone we had we've had skeptics at the beginning but everyone who's come on the course or seen the training is like well actually this is what we need okay, and right. it's not like <clears throat> the Go on YouTube, Google BJJ. Oh, no, we don't want to do that. No, I agree. You don't want to do that. Mm. But the program has, like, as I say, a striking element, striking phase, both offensive and defensive, stand-up grappling, offensive and defensive, and then ground survival. And the main goal of the whole program is to ma maintain, for armed forces, maintain weapons range, yeah. and for police, 
maintain that safe range that or get back to that range yeah oh god yeah. so it, and it's taken a lot of time like yeah, what like it, building out those strategic syllabuses because it's, it's yeah. very similar to what we have what's called a genius model and hard to kill and we basically sat over weeks and months devising everything an individual need to know to plug into to then be proficient to be their own coach from that point onwards and it's, it's an enormous amount and you've actually got to create the syllabus and then you've got to yeah. beat a test it so i can definitely respect how much will have gone into it and then you've also got with with your stuff is battle test it as well well let's try yeah. this system what happened oh well actually the response is not what we we're expecting and it, it fucked it up for that reason so let's go back to the drawing board and let's look at adding in these details and these thought processes it's really interesting that you mentioned about lee rigby because you know what i'd not even considered that for those of guys who are listening in uh in the states who aren't familiar with lee rigby maybe give it a google but it was a pretty traumatic and it was definitely a turning point in the sort of the atmospherics of, of how the, the the british military was seen internally in the uk at least and it's really interesting you said that because you know we often think of guys that are serving and they may be on deployments and they might need to defend themselves in that way but actually you can just be cutting about and be caught at the wrong time at wrong yeah. place by the wrong people who, who wish you ill harm and actually again having that that confidence and self-assurance is is pivotal and also what you've spoken to with regards to actual self-assurance and self-confidence like we spoke just before we jumped on about people who know how to hand, handle themselves in a training multiple times per week and putting hands on another determined opponent and training at 100 resistance typically have a higher sense of self-assurance and of self-confidence so then like through reciprocity when you're speaking to someone that's getting angry who maybe isn't trained you kind of think well i know even if i do a very fundamental like a Kamori, I'm going to break your arm, break your shoulder. I don't want to do that. So you're avoiding conflict and confrontation at all times. So if you have two people who kind of have a mutual respect and understanding, you're probably going to find a better way to articulate it and de-escalate the situation rather yeah. than, than it going hands-on as, you, as you've as you said. And then lastly, you know, we're all familiar with these horror videos that are coming up on YouTube and other social media platforms of, you know, coppers doing, let's say, unprofessional things to control and restrain an individual. And it's, I don't, I genuinely do not believe it's through animosity or through hatred. It's simply yeah. don't know what the fuck else yeah it's like just, a training it's like you're going to revert to instincts it's like you watch I'm two guys twist something i'm going to grab something and pull it but if you understood like okay if i control the joint north of that and i can apply leverage and it's, it's it's a lot more gentle to control that person's posture and put them where i need them rather than just fucking swinging around their elbow and hoping for the best yeah and i think what they have so the police are a bit like they're they have a lot of public scrutiny and so they're always worried about guys with mobiles finding what it's going to look like and how to explain it and because no one understands grappling yeah oh, it's a really bad position look you're sat on his chest it's like nah it's better than me punching him in the face but mm. people don't understand that and what we've managed to do or what we can do with the police train is we can put validation behind why they escalated so i was chatting to him whatever he lunged at me, so I clinched with him. Mm. I didn't put, I need to put him down. I clinched because most of the time, if someone throws a sucker punch at you and you clinch with them, their fight's gone. Yeah. Most people have like, this is my, this is what I'm going to do. And if it happens, great. And they've got a few seconds of, like, I think it's 17 seconds is the average of fight in someone. So they get that attack. If it doesn't work because you've ducked and clinched with them or you just tied them up and they're like, uh, that fight's going to go out and they're going to, actually, this guy knows what he's doing. I better, well, I'm level with it and, and, and sort of stop my attack. And then we can escalate from that to taking them down, controlling them and so on. So we, we can give them an escalation of force model with explanations behind it. So when they have to write up the report, go, this is why I did this, 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 and this. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, the public scrutiny and public like perception is bad, but it's the same with the army. Everyone's got mobile phones. Mm. Everyone's got body cams. So we've got to do stuff that is working and able to control people and, and fill, as I said before, that capability gap. Yeah. yeah. And the reason why it's grappling based, I say we've got a striking phase, but it's kind of more to understand 
the attacks and understand how someone's striking and gives you that option if you just want to maintain a bit of distance. But say, if we take it to army, if the threat's at distance or within striking range, I've got a rifle or I've got a sidearm. It's like, there's no point in me striking, mm. okay? That if it's a lethal threat, if they've gone past and got inside that that the arc of that long, that long arm, then I need an option. And that option's clinching. Yeah, and grappling. Grappling is the answer. Any fight that starts at distance, police, whatever, we have weapons and stuff to deal with that distance. I don't want to get in a striking battle because I can't, one, I can't even the battlefield. The guy's bigger than me, okay? I'm not necessarily going to win that striking match. Well, with grappling, at least you can, even if you just buy yourself a little bit of time, yeah, control that person until backup arrives and stuff, you're going to have a higher percentage chance of coming out on top than you are if you just try and beat the guy up in a striking battle. Yeah, 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 100%. I definitely resonate, identify with, with, with all of that that you've said. So speaking outside of like um, just law enforcement and the military, what kind of responsibility do you think that civilians listening to this should take over their ability to keep themselves safe? Given what we've spoken about, that the police not through lack of motivation for the individuals who are enforcing the law i want to make it really clear that we're not vindicating them or, or making out that they're the problem it's it's it's, it's much higher than that and it's yeah. down to the training they're receiving they're doing the best they can with the resource they have available but because of that you know civilians might feel like they're in a position where they're relatively vulnerable what do you think what do you think they have in terms of responsibility to learn to defend themselves um i think everyone should i think everyone has that responsibility but what like i'm gonna Tread on some toes here. <laughs> Make just crack so, on. I do it all the time. <laughs> we have a lack of police numbers, we, which is the biggest problem. Lack of police numbers and lack of decent training. I got a lot of police who train at the academy and uh, a lot of military, so we're good. But yes, everyone has the right not to be attacked. This is what I'm getting to. Everyone, oh yeah, but you shouldn't have attacked me. Yeah. Right, okay. Yes, we shouldn't. Do. Everyone has the right to defend themselves. Everyone has that right. And everyone has the right not to be attacked. But mm. trying to solve the problem of people attacking other people it is way bigger. And that's probably never going to happen. It's a society-bound thing. So, yeah, we, we should educate people that violence is bad and you shouldn't attack people. And all that. That's great. But that's not going to solve the problem in the short term. Yeah. And the short term is that you should know, one, how to defend yourself. You should know, two, first aid. Okay and have sort of escape plan. Everyone should have a fire escape plan at their house. Mm. So is everyone? Probably not, but the likelihood that you should know what to do if there's a fire in your house. Yeah, it's not, not oh, smoke alarms going off and turn it off. No, actually, is there a fire? Like, how do I open a door handle in a house fire? I can't grab it because if it's hot, I'm going to melt my hand to that to the door handle. Yeah. So, and no one's going to argue with me. No one's going to argue the fact that you should not know, need to know that. You might not, okay, it might be a hole in your repertoire, but you should know what to do if your house sets on fire. I think a lot of the issue people that we run into is people being like, I'll just, it's like, you know, when you talk about an armed combat and you see a lot of guys who lift weights that are pretty big guys, they're like, oh, mate, I'll, I'll fucking, I'll just draw him. Like, I'll just see red. I know what to do. And it's like, nah, well, you won't. Exactly. <laughs> I think you're probably the best equipped and uh, skilled and experienced person to talk to that that frame of mind. You know, when yeah. you big guys are like, yeah, I'll just fucking, I'll just fucking bang him out. And it's like, well, if you're up against someone who actually deliberately lays hands on another human multiple times per week, the chances are it's not going to be in your favor, mate. Yeah, it's like, so most men, what is it? I think there's a great meme where it says 80% of men overestimate their ability to fight. The other 20% just think they'll see red. But it's not everyone <laughs> overestimates their ability. And as you say, unless you're stepping on the mat or sparring or doing something constantly, you don't know what it's like. Mm. And being able to, speaking of experience, be able to handle someone who hasn't got the experience, it's like playing with a little kid. I've, I've been, so rightly or wrongly, we, the program has been tested not necessarily in a 
controlled way, so to speak. We go and teach a class. It's a bunch of squaddies, a bunch of other guys, and they want to test me. Yeah, I'm a civvy, come in. I'm not that big. Um, and I get tested by guys who haven't fought. And it is like playing with a baby. Yeah. They don't know how aggressive they get, how how much you see red. You you don't have the skill set to be able to deal with it. And I've had, if we take it back to the gym, I've had MMA pro MMA fighters, steroided up, massive, huge guys. And they went, they started in the group classes. And after a few weeks, oh, I just want to do one-to-ones. I was like, why do you want to do one-to-ones? Oh, I'll learn more. No, the reason you want to do one-to-ones is you turn up in class yes. and you get handled <laughs> by the guy who sits in an office all day, who is half your size and your ego can't cope with it. Yeah. And it's the same, if you're, it's that saying, if you're the best fighter in the gym, you're in the wrong gym because yeah. you need to be pushing yourself. And if people who train are doing that and pushing themselves, that person who watches UFC at the weekend, has a few beers, goes out and gets angry, he's not going to be able to even touch someone who trains properly. And that, and it, it, it's very hard to even get that across to people who haven't trained. So yeah, the only way to do it is to train. And yeah. like once you train, even if you do one session, you'll be like, actually, I know nothing. And what you do with that decision there is up to you, whether you keep training or whether it tells you that maybe you shouldn't be overly aggressive and think you can see red and, and get away with it. That's up to you. But yeah. honestly, the only way you can do it is to experience it. And everyone should learn how to defend themselves because it's all right. And if you think you can defend yourself and have never trained, you can't. You can't defend <laughs> yeah. yourself. You may have knocked someone out in a street fight, great, but you can't. They probably knew very little either. Yeah. Or they were equally as pissed as you were. And it's exactly. a conversation that it's a very bitter pill for a lot of people to swallow. I remember when I first started training, I was ju I just finished bodybuilding, which I did more for the challenge than anything else. And I was walking around about ten kilos heavier than I am now. And I walked into a gym up here in Manchester, and I was getting arsehole by guys twenty kilos lighter than me. Like they were literally absolutely. I was tapping probably every thirty seconds as a minimum, and then I realised like, yeah, I, I'm. This this false sense of security I've had walking around cutting about because I'm a big guy has been deluded for a long yeah. time. Yeah, one hundred percent. And it's humbling. Yeah, it's very much humbling. And sometimes it, it, people have to be at a stage of their life where they're that they are open to to be to, they're receptive to that information. Some people, if they've got other challenges going on in their life, their ego is relatively inflamed and a dominant presence in their life. They're like, nah, fuck it. Fuck that off. I'm just going to do my own thing. Keep doing that. But I can't speak highly enough to the humility that comes from it. And also you spoke about the enjoyment factor today as well. I don't think we can overlook that. Um, I can't speak to how that would feel with regards to unit cohesion in the military or law enforcement, but certainly like the the genuine sense of, of like family and brotherhood, if you want to call it that, that we get in the gym that I train at and I assume the same at your place as well, is incomparable. And if my life was like void of that, I think I'd probably struggle because my my life is is relatively isolated based on what it is that i do i speak to the clients and team on a regular basis but actually going and getting hands-on with red-blooded blokes and having a laugh having a scrap turning it up and a notch or two is is exceptional i genuinely believe that a lot of red-blooded men fucking need that as a presence in their life oh yeah 100 percent. and it, it's why guys like reorg and stuff are doing so well yeah. um we had we've done the same work with veterans at like um health heroes and stuff for yeah. for years yeah. and doing stuff and that's the main thing they're missing they leave the army that or the military and that camaraderie and other blokes and other male company and stuff. And they come to the gym and we're almost replicating like what they've had in the past. You've got people with the same goal, same interest, but completely different walks of life, but you're coming together in, in that brotherhood. So that's why it's great for sort of the veteran community as well. But also I say nowadays, it's hard to meet people. Mm. Like it's hard to be most people are kind of, they go to work or there's a lot of working from home, pandemic screwed a lot of people over and people are struggling to meet. Where you come down to a gym and train, it, it's different. You have that whole social bonding, humans, I think the tribe, mentality that you get that humans are missing probably in modern society 
it's yeah. great it's like yeah, you it's... can't you can't replicate what you get on the mats and it's a real humble like it sounds very cliche but it really is very humbling to the extent that no one gives a fuck how much you get paid what your job title is what your marital status is sexuality it's like in a gym it's all based on like merit of how good you are in that yeah. gym and there's like a hierarchy within that i don't really necessarily agree with how cultish some jiu-jitsu gyms get but there is definitely a hierarchy of like yeah. he's fucking mega he can handle himself he's new he's still learning um and, and finding mutual respect for people in that is is really really cool so in terms of like armor jiu-jitsu i'm seeing it become more prolific on social media now remember even a couple of years ago it was like it was unheard of whereas you know the royal marines and reorg has been been in the social eye well in the subculture of jiu-jitsu for, for a couple of years now at least yeah. is army jiu-jitsu something that's now really growing yeah i mean so it's probably the, well it's definitely the biggest martial art probably in the army it'll probably the fastest growing sport it's definitely in one of the one of the garrisons we train in it's the it's now the biggest sport there so they're going to get a, a load of funding and stuff so that's, that's really good it's taken a long time i think the main the main issue the guys get is that they get posted every two years so it's like they're training in a gym settled in a gym for two years they either get deployed or then they get posted somewhere else and they're almost restarting their journey so it takes the guys a little bit longer and their, their training is not as consistent obviously because of deployments and stuff so that's the I mean, that's the biggest problem or challenge they're going to face and i think that that needs a conversation between jiu-jitsu academy owners in the uk yeah. because it's like if you get someone who's trained with you for two years you want to promote them they get deployed for six months then they're posted up somewhere else and you're never going to see them again then there needs to be an acceptance from the next club that they go to of the experience and stuff that they've had already it's well, like yeah, there's uh, these eight-year white belts who just because anyway, they've been around yeah. the place, i was about know. to say that we just got a guy who's been training eight years and he's just got his purple belt yeah. but he's not only not time frame he's a beast as well he beats other purple belts and he has been for a long time where i think the army is now fortunate to have some black belts um officer positions as well so we can it, the, the sport can be pushed a bit more and also we're now actually that guy keeps chopping around different clubs, different deployments, but he's really good. So we'll promote him internally yeah. as well. But as a sport, it's, it's growing massively. The benefits there. And yeah, they're sending a big team out to the World Masters in next week. So they're here at the Academy training for a couple of weeks. But I think they've got 13 flying out to fight World Masters, which yeah. is, and it's supported that as it's a recognized sport now, it's on duty status. So they can go out there, do it, get a little bit of support from their units funding wise. So yeah, yeah it's, um, and they're reorger supporting them as well. So it, it, it's definitely growing. And I'd, I think once you get a few of the old guard out and you're getting the the younger guys moving up through the ranks who've been training, then it's just going to have sort of a, a massive like cumulative effect from there. It's almost like there's old guy. We just box in the army. Boxing's massive in the army. And I don't think I do think probably ten years time that jujitsu will be bigger or as big as boxing is. Yeah. So it's just I use the idea of like of like rugby and football with this in terms of like football is really accessible to anybody because it's really pretty simplistic. Fucking yeah. boot in, it goes in that you win, mega. Whereas like rugby is obviously a lot more of a complex sport. So it requires a different individual who understands the nuances of the game. It's very similar with boxing. It's like if you hit him more and you didn't get hit, yeah. you're gonna win. With jiu-jitsu, it's like it can be a really pretty technical match that looks from the untrained oh, eye like yeah. two people just rolling around on the floor. But when you understand the intricacies and nuances, so that speaks to what you said about if you if when you get guys that are promoting through the ranks and you've got black belts or a senior belts and they appreciate that and you maybe get like sports scheme the same that, that, that boxing teams have in the military that could be fantastic for the sport yeah, we, also, we work with a proportion of guys who are based in the US and we've noticed a real cultural difference because obviously they've got like the, the US military combatives tournaments and all that sort of stuff yeah. um, which I believe is like a hybrid of multiple different disciplines but it's yeah, so it's, yeah, it's like so their combatives tournaments are sort of an offshoot of their modern army combatives program 
which yeah. Matt Larson did however many years ago. So if we manage to get ta- like the the tactical jiu-jitsu in through the the units, because that's obviously separate from sport training, it's military skills, it's a military training. But yeah. having combative tournaments or jiu-jitsu tournaments on the back of that is going to be, so I think it's a twofold effect and they're both going to benefit each other. But it's interesting you mentioned like football. So the garrison I mentioned before, yeah. their football team has six people in it. The jiu-jitsu, <laughs> the jiu-jitsu group has 150. That's the way it fucking should be, mate. So right? it's like, this, and, so, and that literally, we started that jiu-jitsu club officially like two years ago, maybe. Yeah, and it, it, it's just growing. So the, the guy, the blokes, now seeing the benefits and the enjoyment and doing it, and it doesn't rely on anyone else as well. I think that's a that's a good thing. It's like even though you have the massive team aspect of you needing people to train with and the camaraderie you get, it also is one hundred percent you accountable. You're not going to get better unless you turn up and train. So it relies on you, and I think some of the guys appreciate that as well. I like that, yeah, I mean, coming from myself, like a very a very competitive, uh, very new age thinking gym, you know, where there's some exceptional talent in the room. You have like two weeks off, and you will get arsehole with something that you thought you were proficient at two weeks yeah. ago. The room is increasing and improving that well, and also you know you get that kind of banter from males. Again, I do generally well male and females. I think it's inside the military. It happens in all areas, and I don't want to be exclusive. But you get bantered when you're not going to training. Like for not turning up, just being a yeah. bit of a shit bloke. And it's like, mate, why aren't you fucking training? Why aren't you here? So you feel part of something. And then even if you zoom out and look at it in kind of the wider operational sense, the more sports and inclusivity and opportunity that a struggling military, in my opinion, can offer to young lads, it is only going to be beneficial and advantageous because it literally is a life skill. It's not like you're going to do it in the confines of a uniform and then you sign off and then that's an, a non-usable skill. Yeah. Like that is something you can do in your own time outside of the job to compete and have fun and make friends. And exactly as you spoke to, you can move around anywhere. Like I'm actually going to Australia. Australia next month and I know that in the town I'm going to there's a jiu-jitsu gym and I'll be able to walk in that gym and the belt that I call out I'm wearing will be recognized and I can train with other people and I'll I'll make friends there for the time that I'm there and I think that I think that's enormous as well yeah no, definitely and um yeah I think they've got to um as you say some gyms are cultish mm. and that's going to want to hold back sort of their own development as a as a gym but also it kind of alienates some of the the community so some guys I know have started training at certain clubs then moved got deployed and moved and then they can't find a, another gym that they they feel welcoming or settled in yeah. so that's a big thing for the guys to try and grow the sport just generally anyway a bit like i think the jiu-jitsu community needs to be a little bit more open we can be quite quite closed especially to outsiders guys you don't know or guys who've trained elsewhere it's like no you gotta well like we're all here for the same goal yeah and yeah so there is even though there's a team element it's not a team sport at the end of the day it's individuals training yeah yeah so uh, that's that's my my view on on that sort of thing but yeah it's it, we'll, we'll get there we'll get there it's exciting to see mate and yeah it's um just just purely out of curiosity i guess and selfish reasons more than anything big fan of the reorg stash if army jiu-jitsu got any plans on releasing some army jiu-jitsu stash um i think they so they do have a sponsorship with storm kimonos storm make their stuff or did make their stuff in china so yeah. they had all the chinese hong kong riots then yeah. they had covid so they've been a little bit sort of screwed over by world events. So now it's just kind of him rebuilding and going from there. But there was definitely there was definitely stuff talk of like um, army jujitsu geese and all sorts of stuff coming yeah. out. So yeah, there will be, there will be stuff. Yeah, there I think there's a lot of people listening to this, myself included. He'll be on it like a backpack as soon as yeah. that comes out, and it'll be yeah, be great awareness. And it'll be great funding for the for the for the cause as well. Yeah. Um, 
So anyway, mate, I'm, I'm, I'll pretty much wrap it up there. What I do want to cover is um, where can people find you? Because I'm sure there'll be an awful lot of people listening to this and like, I want to see more, I want to learn more, I want to hear more about this. Yeah. Where can people find you on, on the world of social um, media? So tactical underscore jujitsu on Instagram is probably my main prolific one at the moment. Yeah. Um, it goes quiet for a bit when I get busy running courses and <laughs> stuff. But um, I'm just working on rebranding the website, which will be tactical. I think it's underscore. No, it's tactical hyphen jujitsu.co.uk. Yeah. Um, I have all the links to train. We do have some online training, yeah. um, which is available. It's not everything we deliver because certain stuff we can't give out to public domain. But you can check out the training on there. Links on the um, on the Instagram. Yeah. Um, or Andy Roberts and stuff. Uh, I'll be putting on some a free training day for the police, probably either end of September or early October. We'll be throwing yeah. in another training day because that's what I try and do. Yeah. I get paid for military training. Um, police don't have the funding or the sort of powers that be supporting enough training so yeah. every so often i'll put on a day come down so probably about six hours training we'll run through some basic self-defense stuff and then we kind of run a theme on what the guys want whether it's control and restraint like cuffing stuff or whether it's some weapon retention for sort of arv guys and stuff so we run through various themes so they're good keep an eye on them and they're supported by a company called c2r fast yeah. they make uh, sort of body armor and kit and stuff so they support those training days as well yeah that's fantastic mate and if people are in close proximity um can they come down and, and get yeah, a membership definitely. Your trainer? yeah yeah so we're in i say we're in north camp um older shot farnborough area so yeah come down if you i've got an app and roberts bjj on the app store yeah. check out the timetable and come down if you are serving so military or emergency services we do discounts and stuff as well so yeah when i down. put the um, when i put the story up that we were doing a podcast and we were recording i had about five people message me and like i specifically requested to get a post into the shot just so i could come and train around me so like, i think you're already pretty popular mate yeah and, uh, uh, send them down i mean as i say we're gonna the police training days i've only managed to do here it's just yeah. the venue i've got a venue in hr4k in hereford are gonna host one as well so yeah. maybe October time, I'll do one up there. But if there's any other gyms or academies with mat space who are willing to give it up for the day for free, I'll I'll run training sessions for for. Yeah, personally, like I'd love to, I'd love to see you up in the north. Um, not that I can't travel down south, but I'd love to see you up in the north. We have probably a high percentage split of guys up in the north England in around Manchester, the Peak and Lake District. Yeah. Um, so it'd be fantastic if if yeah. often and look to organise yeah. that. My parents live in the High Peak. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, so yeah. When I'm up visiting, we can do some stuff. Right. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Super, mate. Well, thank. Thank you very much for your time and um, we'll step up and look forward to seeing you continue to grow the brand mate yeah cheers thanks a lot